Sometimes I lie awake at night and I ask, Where have I gone wrong? Then a voice says to me, This is going to take more than one night. Charles Schultz Peanuts. Welcome to Tea, Toast, and Trivia. Thank you for listening in. Dave Astor and I are once again bridging the 3,923 kilometers between New Jersey and Vancouver. Listeners, you will remember that Dave Astor's book, Fascinating Facts About Famous Fiction Authors and the Greatest Novels, was one of my first 2020 reads. It is a marvelous collection of delicious literary trivia, and you know how I love trivia. Today, Dave has come back to talk about comics, cartoons, confessions, and his first book, Comic and Column, Confessional, which covers an extraordinary period in media history that witnessed the advent of the digital revolution, media mergers, and the shrinking newspaper business that changed journalism forever. This conversation came about when I read Dave's post on October 2nd, 2020, celebrating the 70th anniversary of the 1950 debut of Charles M. Schultz, Peanuts. I have followed Peanuts all of my life. How much influence do comic strips have on our society and cultural values? Dave has a unique perspective on this question. So put the kettle on and add to this exciting conversation on ttoasttrivia.com. I am your host, Rebecca Budd, and I'm looking forward to sharing this moment with you. Welcome, welcome, Dave. It is wonderful to have you back. Well, thank you for inviting me again. We have a lot of conversation to happen today, don't we? Oh, I agree. When did you discover cartoons? Well, I guess I was probably three or four years old, and I saw them in the daily paper that our family got. Got the New York Daily News, and also a New Jersey paper, and each of them had pretty large comic sections. So, like other kids, I read the simplest ones first, like The Family Circus, Nancy, and so on, and over the years, morphed into reading the ones with a little more complexity, like Peanuts. Well, it's a good place to start. When you want to learn to read, we go to the comics. Comics are not quite as major a cultural force as they used to be, but hopefully they still read them. Thomas, my son, learned to read using Garfield and Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown has been with us for a long time. Yeah, Garfield is definitely one of the comics that younger kids will glom onto. Pictures are large, it's relatively simple, it's funny, everybody loves cats. <laughs> Maybe 90% of people. <laughs> everybody loves cats. <laughs> You said that cartooning is a fabulous medium. Why do you think people enjoy reading comic strips? Well, I think a big part of it is the combination of visual and, and words. Basically, the two things together just are bigger than the sum of their parts. I think that's a big part of it. And at least for younger children, it's kind of easy to follow one frame and then another frame and then another frame. And it's just attractive for a young kid. And some of them are, are really funny. Some of them are really intelligent. Uh, some of them are kind of dumb, but still fun. You know, there's a lot of talent behind them. 
And people talk about it over coffee. Did you see that comic? Did you see this person? And then a lot of times those conversations come from a simple line. It's the message behind all of this, and it's more complicated than we imagine. You're right about that. Sometimes it's harder to write concisely and make your point in just a few words, uh, even though it appears to be easier. And comics, I mean, just by necessity, they have to be very tight and concise because they don't have a lot of space. <laughs> though they've said, this is all you get. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Dave, when you were reading Peanuts and you were reading all of these things as a child, did you ever imagine that you would be interviewing them as a journalist? Oh, not at all. I got the job at the magazine, which was called Editor and Publisher, covering comics when I was 29, I think. For that, I, even though I read comics, I had no clue I would have a job covering them. I was a newspaper reporter, more of a general interest newspaper reporter, and I just stumbled into this job because I knew someone, former colleague at a newspaper who moved to this magazine, and they had an opening, and he recommended me. Suddenly, I was assigned to cover comics, and I didn't know anything more about them than anyone else except having read them as, as a fan. Within months, I was interviewing all these people whose comics I had read, and it was just a, a real thrill. So what was Charles Schultz like? His reputation is of being a really nice, gentle, quiet man. And all three of those things are a major part of his personality. But he also is a, a more confident person than I expected, maybe after all the years of success, helped bring that about. He was good, and he was very proud of it, and he was just a very nice person. Very accessible when I would call him for an interview, which would happen maybe seven, eight, nine times a year, if peanuts did something interesting or an anniversary or this or that, he would always come to the phone. He would call his studio and he had an assistant and he would come on a minute or two later and and I'm sure he was very busy. <laughs> so he's very nice about that. Charlie Brown has helped a lot of people over the years. His understanding of his condition and, and the idea of loneliness and idea of friendships have come through and people have identified with that. Absolutely. And Charlie Brown was definitely kind of an alter ego for Charles Schultz, especially the younger Charles Schultz. But when I asked him about that once, he said that every character in Peanuts is an aspect of his personality. He had the Charlie Brown part of his personality, kind of the, the loner, the, um, the put-upon kid who often, quote-unquote, failed. But he also had kind of a fun side, which came out with Snoopy. The different characters uh, reflected different parts of him. This Halloween... I waited up with Linus for the Great Pumpkin, don't you know? Right. <laughs> pumpkin patch was no sign of hypocrisy. <laughs> I know, that was just a classic kind of uh, scenario, the, the Great Pumpkin and that Halloween peanut special. And, and Linus is such a great character, you know, with the security blanket and yes, the, the insecurity, but he's also very calm and very appealing character. And very wise. Oh, very wise. Yeah, very smart. Yeah, I wonder if he and Snoopy may be the smartest characters. And, and then Lucy, of course, is very smart too, but a bit on the abrasive side. And apparently she was at least partly based on Charles Schultz's first wife. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think he kind of always made that clear, but it was pretty obvious once you got to know the situation. <laughs> she always had that football ready for Charlie Brown. Yeah. And there was always a reason why he went for it. Being able to trust. 
the whole idea of trust came through. And I think that when you see a comic that mirrors what we want in our lives, it helps us to process. And I think, is that why comics are so real? Because when you think about it, you also interviewed Gary Larson, The Far Side. Now, that's an incredible story. First of all, it's just like one of the funniest comics that has ever been created. Gary, when he was young, was kind of insecure, and he couldn't imagine anybody wanting to print his comic. He kind of sent it around, and I think he visited San Francisco at some point to see if he could get it with the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper and their syndicate. And and when they wanted it, he was just stunned, and then it just kind of took off from there. You know, we just don't know what we'll grab. We think that we have... You know, here's an idea, but we don't know if it's going to be a groundswell. Yeah, and sometimes things are very original for their time. I mean, the foresight seems there's so many comics now that are kind of like that. But back then, in newspapers, there were very few comics that had that kind of, you know, no recurring character, just bizarre, you know, gag per day. He was kind of a pioneer, at least in newspapers. So, yeah, just don't know what's going to take and become popular, and, and his did. And now... He is a daily calendar you can pick up. The last time I was at the coffee shop, they had it right there. Every day they had the far side. It's a conversation starter, isn't it? His imagination was just so incredible, and some of the gags are just so memorable. I still can remember some of them from 30 years ago or, or whatever it is. I remember one where a wolf was chasing a sheep. The wolf jumped into a taxi and said, follow that sheep, you know, <laughs> He didn't want to run, wanted a little transportation help and just things like that. You know, the animals kind of uh, acting like humans and so on. <laughs> One of my favorite comics when I was growing up was Beetle Bailey. Mort Walker. What was he like? I always wanted to know. He was one of the nicest people you would ever want to meet. I mean, he was just very friendly and down to earth. I would see him at meetings and he would talk to aspiring cartoonists in the same way that he talked to his fellow superstars. I mean, he was just very genuine. I got to know him fairly well. And he was also an incredibly hard worker and always doing something because Beetle Belly was only one of maybe seven comics he created over his career. He also co-created High and Lois and created other comics that other people ended up doing. He opened a cartoon museum. He uh, wrote at least a dozen books. He wrote a play, just crammed things into every minute of his life. One thing about Beetle Bailey, started out in the Army. The, the first uh, few months of the comic, he was a college student. And uh, uh, the comic wasn't doing that well. This was in 1950. I guess this is around the time of the Korean War. So he moved Beetle from college into the Army. And suddenly it took off. It's interesting that some comics don't start the way they end up. And also, a Beetle is Lois's brother from High and Lois. I did not know that. <laughs> right. Let's get this straight. Beetle Bailey was the brother of Lois from High and Lois. Yes. High and Lois started four years after Beetle Bailey did, and I guess they kind of spun it off by having Lois be the sibling of Beetle. Well, you know what that means. It means that you are part of the family. <laughs> right. Yeah, all, the, all these uh, interconnections. That has given me a whole different perspective. I followed both of them, never thinking. Well, I was a young child, wouldn't know that the two of them were connected. That is amazing. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, I'm not sure if how many comics were done where they 
showed that connection. I know about it because I heard it from Mort. I assume there must have been some comics where they showed that. I just, I've never seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Cartoonists are writers, but they have a unique way of telling a story. Yes. My thought is, how do they keep focus and how do they keep it going day after day after day? When you figure they do 365 comics a year, it's it's kind of daunting. John Updike, uh, the famous author, once joked that it's a lot easier to be a novelist because you only have to come up with like one idea every two years. But with cartoons, you have to come up with 365 a year. I mean, he was exaggerating, of course. But I think cartoonists handle that in different ways. A lot of cartoonists will do a lot of comics at once. So they won't like sit down and do one per day and then wait and do the, another one the next day. They might sit down and do a whole week's worth, a few days, or even a month's worth, and so they get some momentum going. But still, it's it's exhausting. And There was even a movement back, I guess, in the 90s where some cartoons were trying to get vacations where they asked their syndicates run reruns maybe for one to four weeks a year so they could you know, take a little time off. And some of the more... Uh, famous ones had the clout to do that, but a lot of others weren't able to. And then also some cartoonists handle it by having assistants help them. Some comics like Garfield and, and Beetle Bailey were kind of eventually done by committee, which I guess helped avoid burnout to some extent, even if the original creative vision might have been hurt a tiny bit. Well, this is the thing. There's two things they have to do. They have to write the story And then they have to create the art that goes along with the story. So we have two different types of talents that sometimes don't go together. Yeah, and some cartoonists obviously do both. It's like they have a left brain, right brain talent. But there have been some cases where one cartoonist will do the writing and one will do the drawing. It's a major talent to to do both and fit them in and make it flow and so on. Well, and and actually have a, a cliffhanger. Especially in the story strips, you know, like Terry and the Pirates or Steve Canyon, even for better or for worse, which was sort of a hybrid humor story strip. You, you know, from day to day, week to week, you might be left hanging, wondering what would happen. Spider-Man, Apartment 3G, Rex Morgan, MD, Judge Parker, they they definitely milked those cliffhangers. Well, Don's favorite comic when he was young was Terry and the Pirates. Well, uh, that was uh, Milton Kniff. He created Terry in 1934, and it was an incredibly popular comic. I mean, it was maybe the most famous comic in the world in the 1930s and 1940s. And it was an adventure strip, and it was really well drawn. And Milk Kniff did incredible research. I'm not sure how much he traveled you know, to do his research, but he just did an incredible amount of reading and research to make things look real and genuine. And he had these memorable characters like Terry. Terry was kind of like a innocent kid and the dragon lady was the femme fatale and and then there were you know various other characters but milt actually only did it for about a dozen years he he never owned the comic i was owned by the syndicate that distributed it and he kind of chafed at that after a while so in 1946 he actually quit the comic he couldn't take it with him because he didn't own it even though he created it and it was assigned to a another person named george wonder that might be the version that don saw which was also done well, though not as well. And Mill created a new comic called Steve Canyon, which was about a, a military pilot, and did that for the rest of his life. He made a deal where when he created this new comic, the syndicate that would distribute it would uh, let him own it. 
Well, it's interesting about intellectual property, isn't it? And how we've learned through the years to actually protect that and be able to give the artist rights. Yes, exactly. That's very true. And there's more artist rights than there used to be, although it's certainly by no means complete. But 40, 50 years ago, whether you were in movies or doing comics or other things, you often didn't have contracts you were very fond of. I was thinking about comic strips in terms of influence on nations. For example, Gary Trudeau was able to provide social and political commentary in Doonesbury. I understand that in 1975, he was the first daily comic strip to win a Pulitzer Prize. Yes. Oh, and I read that somewhere that President Gerald Ford, that same year that he received the editorial tuning Pulitzer Prize, said, There are only three major vehicles to keep us informed as to what is going on in Washington. The electronic media, the print media, and Doonesbury. Not necessarily in that order. Gerald Ford was a good sport. There's some politicians who would have just not have said that because they were so angry at uh, what Gary Trudeau was doing in the comic. Yeah, he just had, a, had and has a great touch where he did great satire, but it was also funny and it wasn't mean-spirited. It was cutting, but he just had the perfect way of doing things. And, and he was indeed the first comic strip creator to win the Pulitzer because there's no comic strip category in the Pulitzer Prizes. So the Pulitzer people back in the 70s, they grafted Doomsbury into the editorial cartoon category that year. And I guess it was an editorial cartoon in the form of a comic strip, like three panels instead of like one big picture. And he was still in his 20s when he won that. He was very good, very young. Well, good for him. So how do you start as a cartoonist? A lot of cartoonists drew from when they were really small. And then suddenly, like when they were teens or in their 20s, they you know, looked at the comics and newspaper and figured, like, how did this come about? And, and I'm sure they researched and found that you do a bunch of sample comics, like maybe a month's worth. You send them off to these syndicates who kind of distribute the comics. And syndicates decide whether they want to distribute it or not. The odds are long. They they might get 10,000 submissions a year and pick 10. But then if they pick it, then they sign a contract and then they distribute it to newspapers. So that's how a lot of cartoonists got their start. Some have always self-distributed where it's harder because they don't have a big company and sales force behind them, but they can also control their property more. There was a comic called Sylvia. I'm not sure if that was distributed a lot in Canada, which was self-distributed, which was very good. And uh, Zippy the Pinhead was self-distributed for a while before it, it actually ended up with a big syndicate. And, and once in a while, it's sort of passing on from parent to child, where the parent does a comic and then the child ends up doing a comic, so they know how to go about it because they've lived it from their younger days, watched their parents. Uh, you also interviewed Lynn Johnston. And what I found interesting is the connection of friendships between authors of comics. I understand she was good friends with Charles Schultz. They were about 25 years apart in age. Uh, so Schultz was kind of almost like a father figure mentor to Lynn. But when Lynn became a cartoonist and became widely syndicated, uh, the two of them must have met either at a meeting or maybe, you know, met by phone or something. But they became very good friends. Cartoonists tend to be a pretty friendly bunch. A lot of cross-cartoonist friendships. Like any friendship, it had wonderful moments and some tense moments. 
Back in the 90s, Lynn Johnson planned to have her dog Farley in the comic die because the characters in the in her comic aged. So death was sort of inevitable, even though they age slower than in people do in real life. She was discussing that with Charles Schultz, and Charles Schultz was apoplectic. I mean, he just couldn't see killing off such a wonderful character, you know, a pet. I heard through the grapevine, I don't know if this is true, but that uh, he said, if you kill off Farley, I'm going to kill off Snoopy. Then <laughs> <laughs> killed off Farley and Snoopy survived. But people definitely have different creative visions about what they want to do with their comics. And uh, Lynn was very determined to be realistic, at least in a cartoon framework, and have things happen in the comic that were kind of painful, but reflected real life. Well, it was interesting. She's Canadian, so that's near and dear to, to our heart. But actually, comics and comic ideas belong to the world. It's something that they bring an unusual vision to us. And it's a mirror, isn't it, of who we are. Absolutely. I mean, some comics obviously do it better than others. I mean, some comics maybe are just funny and they don't say a lot about much of anything, but there are plenty of comics that really are a mirror. And uh, the people who do them, they're human beings. They have emotions we relate to. They put their characters in situations we relate to. They see life and kind of comic form. It's recognizable. Are your last thoughts on how it was to meet these people? felt very lucky and it was also interesting to see if a cartoonist as a person was sort of as I expected or whether they surprised me. If I just found it interesting to learn about their creative processes and processes. And and once in a while, I kind of met them just in time, like with Bill Waterson of Calvin and Hobbes. When his comic started in the mid-80s, he was kind of reclusive and shy, but he was in public at times. He would go to meetings and this and that, and I met him a couple times and I interviewed him on the phone, but he just wanted to concentrate on the comic and not really do any public things. So he just stopped talking to the media and stopped going to meetings. There were a couple years there where I met him just in time. So that was kind of nice and it was just a fun job. I also covered columnists too, which is a whole other story. Uh, basically anybody who was syndicated. So I got to meet uh, Ann Landers and Dear Abby and Herma Bombeck and people like that. I was really lucky to have a job like that. Well, they were lucky to have you as an interview because if we didn't have you, we wouldn't know about them and the hard work they do and the difficulties of working in solitary. This is a solitary existence in many cases. Writers sit there on their own at the typewriter, thinking it up and having conversations in their minds. We don't know anything about it. We just enjoy what they have produced. What you have done is you honored who they were, not what they did. Charles Schultz once wrote, why can't we get all the people together in the world that we really like and then just stay together? I guess that wouldn't work. Someone would leave. Someone always leaves. Then we would have to say goodbye. I hate goodbyes. I know what I need. I need more hellos. Brilliant quote, and it really shows his awareness of emotions and also his kind of melancholy, and people really could relate to that. And I think that what you do when you come on Tea, Toast, and Trivia, Dave, is you give a lot of hellos to me. And I really enjoy our conversations. And, of course, I'm going to ask you, are you going to come back? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I really enjoy our conversations, too. You're just a wonderful 
podcast host and ask great questions. So I would love to come back. Thank you for the hellos. Thank you for being so readily available to talk about things that are important to us. We live in very difficult times. We have a time of solitude now, and now we're learning how to connect and how to do it virtually and to feel that we're part of a community that brings ideas together and and encourages each other. So you are so much a part of that world. You were one of the first people that came on to support, and I just really appreciate it. And so does Don Artecki. Thank you for inviting me on so uh, early in your podcast life. Also, Don's a great tech person. You two are a great team. So thank you, everyone, for joining Dave and me on Tea, Toast, and Trivia. You can connect with Dave on Dave Astor on Literature. I would heartily recommend coming on to his blog. We have a great conversation there. Posts are always full of fun, and the people that come and join in the conversation are vibrant, exciting, and enthusiastic about life. There is always, always an adventure in reading waiting for your arrival on Dave Astor on Literature. And until next time, dear friends, keep safe and be well.